Well, good morning. I want to welcome all of you who are visiting us for the first time today. My name is Pastor Kevin. I'm the assistant pastor of Family Life here. And I just want to welcome you. Um, this is actually going to be my last time in the pulpit at St. Peter's Anglican Church. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the blessing of this church community. And I pray this morning that our hearts would be open to receive what you have for us, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing to you, Almighty Father. Amen. So since this is my last sermon here at St. Peter's, Pastor Brian gave me free reign to preach on whatever I wanted to. Or let me rephrase. Whatever the Holy Spirit led me to preach on for this Sunday. Um, and so I took him up on that, and I felt, you know, taking some time to pray and discern what does the Lord want me to preach on for my final message here. Um, I felt led to focus on a theme in Scripture and a specific point about what the Word has to say has been very impactful and influential on my own life. Um, and to do that, I want us to take a look at three different passages of Scripture and then put it all together. And coincidentally, just crazy how that happens to be our three Scripture readings from this morning. Amazing how that works out, right? So open with me to first Ezekiel chapter 47. Ezekiel chapter 47. Ezekiel's in the Old Testament. It's past the Psalms. It's past Isaiah and Jeremiah. If you hit Daniel, you've gone too far. And while you're turning there, let me give you some background about this passage. Ezekiel was a prophet um, to God's people who were in exile in Babylon. God spoke to Ezekiel through these wild visions and dreams, elaborate, detailed visions, which he was often called to then relay on to the people of God for his purposes. So beginning in chapter 40, the Lord gave Ezekiel this vision, a very detailed prophetic vision of the temple, the holy temple. Now, remember, they're in exile. Jerusalem has already been destroyed, and the holy temple has been destroyed with it. So beginning in chapter 40, for three chapters, Ezekiel has this vision from God where he meets a supernatural person. It says, the Bible says, a man whose appearance was like bronze, and he had a linen cord and a measuring reed in his hand. He had tools for measuring distances, short and long. And this, this bronze man, this supernatural figure at the Lord's direction, served as both a guide to Ezekiel through this vision of the temple and as a surveyor, taking measurements and giving detailed information to Ezekiel to remember and to give to the people of Israel when they go to rebuild the temple. Now, the man takes Ezekiel through this vision of the temple in great detail. They see each of its courts, each of its chambers and its gates. It goes all the way into the most holy place in the center where God's presence dwelled with precise measurements for everything. And then in chapter 43, we read that the glory of the Lord came rushing in like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. This tangible, visible presence of God's glory entered 
and filled the temple. And God said to Ezekiel, This is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet, where I will dwell in the midst of the people of Israel forever. And then the Lord continued to show Ezekiel and to give him instructions about the altar that was to be built for offerings and all sorts of laws and rules concerning the temple and the priests and the courts and feasts, etc., etc. And then after all this vision about the temple is shown in great detail, To Ezekiel, all the rules are covered. We get to chapter 47. And it reads, starting in verse 1, Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar, and he brought me out by way of the north gate, Led me around to the outer gate that faces east, and behold, the water was trickling out on the south side. Water was pouring out from the temple. It was rolling down the mountain. Remember, the temple was built on Mount Zion, the highest point in Jerusalem, the great hill. Water was flowing out from the temple and down the mountain towards the east. The temple, the glory and the presence of God was the source of this water flowing out. Then they traveled. The further they traveled out, the deeper it got. First it was ankle deep, and then it was knee deep, then it was waist deep, and then it was so deep they had to swim, and it was a river that they couldn't pass. And then in verse 7, it says, As I went back, I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on one side and the other. From this water sprang forth life. Trees. And he said to me, this water flows towards the eastern region and goes down to the Arabah and enters the sea. When the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. Now, if you've ever been to Israel, you would understand what this is talking about. If you haven't been to Israel, picture in your your mind's eye this map of Israel where where Jerusalem is right here in in, in Israel. And to the east, there's a big sea. What sea is that? Anybody know? Hmm? The Dead Sea. The Dead Sea. The surface of the Dead Sea is 1,300 feet below sea level. It's the lowest point on earth. It's so salty that absolutely nothing can live in there. It's devoid of life. In Ezekiel's vision, there's this, this fresh water of life, this living water that's creating life flowing out from it that's going down into the deadest place in the world. And it's creating the saltiest sea to become fresh water. Our translation says, the water will become fresh. But the Hebrew word here for fresh, becoming fresh, is really the word rapa, which throughout the whole Old Testament is actually translated heal. These dead waters will be healed. The dead sea will be miraculously restored. And so then what's the result? We we read in verse 9 and 10. 
Wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live. And there will be many fish, for this water goes there, and the waters of the sea, the dead sea, will become fresh. So everything will live where the river goes. Fishermen will stand beside the sea, from Engedi to Eneglam. It will be a place for the spreading of nets. Its fish will be very many kinds, like the fish of the Great Sea, the Mediterranean Sea. Engedi and Eneglam were towns along the western shore of the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea will be so springing with life that these towns will become flourishing fishing villages. And then in verse 11 it says, but its swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They'll be left for salt. Because even when God's doing a new thing here, he recognizes that there are good things that are still there. There's a good thing with the salt that is there. And the Lord will leave these pools to be mined for salt and for minerals that are valuable to the the Israelites for seasoning and preservatives. And then verse 12, it says, On the banks, on both sides of the rivers, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. Living water flowing from the new temple that's filled with the glory, the presence of God. Wherever the living water goes, it brings forth life, abundant life. It brings healing to dead places. It bears life-giving fruit. So now let's turn to our gospel reading. It's in John chapter 4. As you heard earlier, in John chapter 4, this is the story where Jesus meets the Samaritan woman at the well of Jacob. And he asks her for a drink of water. And beginning in John chapter 4, verse 9, she answers him, How is it that you, a Jew, asks for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. If you had asked, he would have given you living water. Water that brings forth life. And then verse 13, Jesus says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. A spring of water welling up to eternal life. Do you think that Jesus had any idea of this vision from Ezekiel and his, you know, being the Messiah, knowing the scriptures? That this welling up and flowing out of the temple, do you think he might have had this imagery in mind? This prophetic vision of life giving water when speaking and, and using the language of living water? And consider where the conversation goes from there with this Samaritan woman. In verse 19, the woman acknowledges that Jesus must be a prophet and he, she asks him about worship. She she says that her fathers had worshipped on this mountain, the mountain of Jacob, where this well was. 
but that the Jews were saying to them that that's not the right mountain to worship on. You're supposed to be worshiping in Jerusalem on Mount Zion, where the temple is, where the temple, that, that, that's the place where people ought to worship. That was in Ezekiel's vision, the place where the water was flowing out from, right? What does Jesus say to her? In verse 21, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. The hour is coming in verse 23, and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So we have Ezekiel's vision of living water flowing from the holy temple. And we have Jesus, the giver of living water, declaring that the temple is no longer to be the place of worship, but rather in spirit. The water I will give him will become in him a spring of water, in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. If we looked at Paul's letters, we would see that throughout them, Paul writes that our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And this can be understood both individually and personally and corporately. That individually can be understood that our bodies, we are a temple of the Holy Spirit. When we believe, when we put our faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of us as a temple. And also can be understood corporately that we, the Christians in community, are the body of Christ, the church. Paul writes that we are citizens of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. He says in, in Ephesians 2 that we are being joined together, growing into a holy temple of the Lord. That we are being built together into a dwelling place for God. A temple, a dwelling place for God's Spirit. You following along with me on this? A spring of wet water welling up to eternal life. So then how do we receive living water? How then are we filled with the presence of God, the spring of water welling up to eternal life? And to answer that, I want to turn to our last passage of this morning, Galatians 2, chapter 20. Paul's words here in Galatians 2 have been incredibly formational and impactful in my own life. If, if I had to pick out one verse to be somewhat of a, of a life verse for me, it would be Galatians 2.20. And it reads, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith and the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So let's walk through this. I, I have been crucified with Christ, sharing in his death and sharing in his suffering, dying to myself 
I have been crucified with Christ. We, we must allow ourselves, our own lives, our own desires, our own hopes, our own dreams, our own ambitions, even our own identity to die, to be crucified, to be executed with Christ. When he calls his disciples to take up your cross and follow me, he's saying, die to yourself. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. Everything that is my own is surrendered on the cross. It's gone. I have nothing of myself that is good, nothing worthy within myself to hold on to. There's no good in me apart from Jesus. So I hold on to nothing. And in Christ alone, my hope is found. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That by sharing in his death, by dying to myself, I may also come to share in this glorious resurrection. And not just the glorious resurrection that is our hope of the future, but a taste of it here and now. This life, this resurrection life, now in the Spirit, Christ alive in me. My life is gone, surrendered, crucified, in order that Christ can fill me and live in me and through me. It's as if we were like this cup of water. And this water that is us is stained and tainted and it's dirty. And we try as, we, as hard as we can to cleanse ourselves and we can't. And sometimes we just want to add a little bit of Jesus to try to fill us up. But what does it do? It doesn't rid us of our sins just by adding a little bit of Jesus onto the top of everything else in our lives. There's not enough room for the both of us, right? Now what, what God calls us to when he says to take up your cross and follow me, he wants us to just completely die to ourselves, to be completely poured out for him the way that he poured himself out for us, that he can come and he can cleanse us of the rest of that sin and that by grace we are empty vessels, jars of clay where Christ can fill us with his spirit his living water, that we can be cleaned, we can be healed and renewed and restored in his image, bearing good fruit. That his spirit might live in us and through us. Jesus doesn't just call us to add a little bit of him to our lives as if he was just one more thing to fit on top of all the busy things in our lives. He calls us to give him all of ourselves, everything. He wants our lives. He wants to change everything, to surrender ourselves 
to completely empty ourselves. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, my new self, changed and transformed, filled with the Spirit of God, cleansed fully by the blood of Jesus and made a new creation, a vessel of his glory and his power, a witness to his grace and mercy. This is the new life that I now live in the flesh. I live it by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This new life of mine by faith in Christ is now lived completely for Jesus, for God. I hold on to nothing of my own. He bought my life at a price. And he calls me to give it back to him. I am his now. As he gave his life for mine, I surrender my life back to him. That he can live in me and through me. For his purposes, for his desires, for his kingdom, not my own will to be done. That is Christianity. That is what Jesus calls us to. This is my last chance to preach to you from this pulpit at St. Peter's. And with these final words, let me tell you that Christianity, true Christianity, it's not about you. It's not about just what you believe or it's not about what you do on Sundays it's not about you and how you live your life, your good deeds, your charity, your impact. It's not about you or what you do. True Christianity is about one thing and one thing only. Jesus Christ. His glory. His kingdom. His will to be done. And to be a true Christian is not about what you just believe or about what you do on Sundays or about how impactful you are, how you treat people. It's about dying to yourself, letting yourself be poured out and made empty because we have nothing good in of ourselves and inviting Christ to be poured out in us in his spirit. Being filled with the Holy Spirit and experiencing the one true, abundant life. It's not about what you can do for God. It's about what God can do through you. Be crucified with Christ. Empty yourself. Die to yourself so that Jesus can live in you and through you. To be a light of the world through you. To be salt of the earth through you to cause his kingdom to come through you, for his will to be done through you. And so that all things in your life, by faith and obedience, will be for his glory. Because he alone is worthy. He alone is worthy of your life, of your time, of your energy, your faith and obedience. He alone is worthy. Everything else falls so short, infinitely short, there's nothing worth holding on to. And so this morning, I urge you, I urge you with all of my heart, 
pick up your cross. Pick up your cross and be crucified with Christ. I urge you to come to the table this morning broken and empty. That Christ can fill you with his spirit and his new life. Let go of the grasp that you have on your, your own life and your own will and your own plans and let Christ live in you. And it won't be easy. And it certainly won't be comfortable. There's nothing in the entire Bible that says that Christianity is comfortable. There will be hardship. There will be pain and there will be suffering. Jesus promises us that. But there will be peace. And there will be an unending joy and hope. And it will be good. But this, this is what Christ calls us to. Pouring ourselves out to be filled with God. So may the Holy Spirit compel you to die to yourself, to be emptied and poured out, to be filled with Christ, to be filled with living water by the power of the Holy Spirit. May you find peace and hope, and the fullness of abundant life in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit to the glory of God the Father. Amen.